Bigelow, and welcome to the Deep Overstock Fiction Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Santiago, and this week we have a special episode celebrating the release of Deep Overstock Issue 13, Future. Dust off your crystal balls, draw from your tarot deck, rattle some bones, and watch the sky for birds. But you don't need to know the future to realize that we've got some great pieces to hear in this episode. We'll hear work by Amy Van Duzer, Carla Lynn Merrifield, Kate Wiley, and Andy Dunn. In the Cards by Carla Lynn Merrifield. Carla Lynn Merrifield has 14 books to her credit, including the 2019 full-length book, At Baskin Fractal, Poems of the Far North from Cirque Press. She is currently working on a poetry collection, My Body the Guitar, to be published in December 2021 by Before Your Quiet Eyes Publications Holograph Series. Now, here's In the Cards by Carla Lynn Merrifield. In the Cards, and it begins with an epigraph. The defining moments in our lives often don't come with advance warning. That's from Sally Yates, former Mm -hmm. U.S. Deputy Attorney General. And here's the poem in the cards. I read the news today, then consulted the tarot. Seeing myself in the major arcana's high priestess of unknown secrets and hidden information, who dispenses both if I'll listen. What happens changes a life. Thirteen, the death card, turns full frontal. I spend the better part of a May day with my better half at ER in Rochester, EMTs expecting he'd have to be admitted. Dehydration, prognosis, becoming more problematic. Dementia, deep sixes appetite for death by starvation. Swallowing reflex shuts down and he aspirates food, gets pneumonia, dies. I know a secret. I have information. This is defining. Now here's Dewpoint by Kate Wiley. Kate Wiley is a poet from St. Louis, Missouri, an MFA candidate at Pacific University and 2018 Webster University alumni. Wiley reads fiction for the new Southern Fed Fugitives and is a regular contributor to the Ehlers-Donlos Syndrome Society magazine, Loose Connections. Now, here's Dewpoint by Kate Wiley. Dewpoint. At the exact moment where night becomes day, there's a meet-cute between heat and atmosphere that only takes place certain places, not L.A. or the Florida Keys, where white sand minutes tick strictly forward, but along plainland rivers where crickets and frogs take turns directing an orchestra of timber rattlesnakes and cormorants, singing backwards, their wings spread against stars, sweeping shadows into daylight. We went, at dawn, down into the fog-thick valley, just to listen, our feet dangling from a sycamore, log stretched graciously across the shallow inlet, blue indigo and purple loosestrife shining in the almost morning. I promise we'll remember this forever, the way today held out so long, our feet red with gravel, dipped in the river, cleansed by moss-thick stones and morning's first glimmer. Our next piece is The Pharaoh's Orchid by Amy Van Duzer. 
Amy Van Duzer is a lifelong writer and MFA candidate at St. Mary's College in Los Angeles. Her work has been featured in publications such as Wild Things, Mediterranean Poetry, The Drabble, Cold Moon Journal, and Cephalo Press. She is more inspired by other poets and lyricists. Now, here's The Pharaoh's Orchid, written by Amy Van Duzer. The Pharaoh, a born idealist, but a decided realist, ruled his lands fairly. Although the streets did not shine with gold, the lands were abundant with soil fertile enough for perennial crops and wine grapes, olives, and apricot trees. His people had a dependable harvest in the autumn months and a large spread on the table each night. The young held hands on their way to school each morning, singing songs of their ancestors before them. The elders never wanted for company, enjoying their family's presence each day. Every year in the late summer months, the pharaoh's royal orchid bloomed in different hues, determining news of the years to come. The patriarch and his people waited each year for the flower's color to impress the news upon them. An event was held and all people attended, waiting to see the fortune of the flower. All in attendance wore the most recently imported silks with the very best gold jewelry, showing the pure abundance that had blessed their lands and families. Their eyes narrowed as the bud slowly dispersed, showing its petals to the crowd. A scream rang out. The petals outstretched from the bud, shining and black in the late morning sun. The pharaoh hung his head. It was an omen with a meaning he had never seen before, an impending death of a royal. With this, he turned to his pregnant wife, hesitant to look into her two familiar eyes. The monsoons began that evening. And to end tonight's reading is the truly prophetic piece, Prophecy, by A.G.J.D. A.J.D. has been a bookseller on and off for a decade or so, and an undisciplined and unproductive writer and artist for longer than that. Now, here's Prophecy by A.J.D., read by Z.B. Wagner. A Future from the Probability Cloud by A.J.D. The future is a cone, a cone of possibilities extending from the present point. The cone is moving through space-time, following a forward arrow, unipolar. The cone is moving through space-time, following a forward arrow, unipolar, directed towards tomorrow. Our future manifests out of a cloud of probability from within the cone. The future is precisely unknown, but looming a microsecond away, then proceeding into a widening blur of probability. This is the dominant image that comes to mind with hazy origins in some pop physics and cosmology books I read long ago. In some representations, there is a mirrored cone on the other side of the present point, representing the past. In retrospect, Perhaps I am overscaling the concept of a light cone and a usable metaphor when considering the future, and especially the past. The future is a rumpled blanket of continuity as well. The surface folds, the fabric threads, extended from end to end. 
There is a terrain, and we're just a small part of it. The context is overwhelming, determinative. The best way we can do is try to glean the patterns. We direct our instruments, our imagination towards this deciferment. Knowledge accumulates, terrain is exploited, the future undermined. That's where we are, I think, the present point. Our activities have cast new folds in the blanket. We're falling in. The threadbare tunnel, a scarred battlefield of rapturous extraction, obsessive combustion, seems to be twisting into a tangled knot of feedback loops and extinctions. Too pessimistic? On the macro scale, I might agree. Frogs and bats, though, disappearing by the zillions today, are likely to think it too mild a depiction. And I'm with them, and us, because we're next, and the macro scale doesn't care. So in opposition to what I see as suicidal, ecocidal, business-as-usual-forever-chemical accumulation and profiteering over a cliff, I'll offer a vision of another way, another future, hopefully better. I have no special qualifications, I'm, not, I'm no academic, nor even all that well-read. I have some lived experience and a history with lefty media, but nothing that notable. I just feel it is time we, collectively, start articulating these alternative versions more frequently. I offer this essay, with occasional verse, as part of that conversation. My vision encompasses three overlapping values. Universal human rights, the equitable distribution of resources, and ecological restoration for future generations. I believe these foundational values, guiding a rationally planned economy, are required to prevent a variety of bad outcomes, from nuclear war to mass starvation. Humanity reached a certain milestone when, in grave reflection of the smoldering ruins and holocaust of World War II, the newly created United Nations General Assembly of 1948 adopted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights without dissent. Though not yet the force of law, the declaration is similar to the Bill of Rights in the U.S., but adds rights for every person to have health care, housing, food, education, freedom from discrimination, and freedom of movement. These are the rights identified by our forebears, to permit a dignified existence to every human being and to prevent the recurring cycles of war and oppression based on want and fear, putting aside for a moment the mechanism by which such rights might be guaranteed and delivered, the the fulfillment of these basic provisions should be an obvious marker to judge a society's success, today and in the future." As to an equitable distribution of resources, it means what it sounds like, wealth redistribution, from the very rich to the common good. There are enough resources in the world to provide for both universal human rights and ecological recovery, and there will be in the future, even with the rapid ecological changes and crises we're about to experience. But this basic provisioning is impossible under the current system, where just 1% of the world's population owns half the world's wealth. A high Gini inequality number is not only cruel and arbitrary, it creates its own corrupting feedback loop, as a perpetual machine of lawyers and lobbyists work tirelessly to shove even more power and wealth upward, underwriting media and politics to control conversation and regulation. 
In the United States, where inequality has been growing for several decades, the political system is now plainly oligarchy. That is, legislation inevitably follows rich donors' desires, not voters, as a 2014 study from Northwestern and Stanford showed. Even many wealthy Northern European countries, long assumed to have locked in human rights such as universal health care for their populations, have seen these rights attacked by the wealthy machine's automated functions, corporate neoliberalism, privatization, and government austerity. Worldwide, corporations themselves, key instruments in the upward wealth and power funnel, rule over vast empires in tyrannical, dictatorial organization whose sole purpose is to extract ever-increasing rates of return to investors while externalizing common costs. The process of turning this tide, recovering most of the wealth and power wielded by a tiny minority and their legion of representatives, and instead putting it towards the benefit of most people and towards sustaining that which remains of the living planet, will be a difficult and complex struggle. But it is necessary, arguably more so now than ever before. This brings me to the third value underlying this vision of an alternative future. Ecological Restoration for Future Generations We are on the cusp of a human-caused mass extinction event, one featuring cataclysmic events such as drought, widespread flooding, and coastal sea rise, which will directly impact billions of people. In an unintended experiment whose consequences are still unclear, we've also doused the entire living biosphere with our chemical pollutants, PFCs for example, PFCs in the Arctic. Further experimentation is underway with the forced introduction and monopolization of genetically modified seeds and organisms. Exciting new markets in the neoliberal regime on the road to transhumanism for the elite and their guinea pigs. A lower emission future is feasible. A sustainable system might be installed. The precautionary principles empowered and humanity's innate values of solidarity and fairness reinvigorated. It can be and should be if there is to be a better future, as I see it. The fights are the same. The carbon emissions causing global warming, the toxic pollution contaminating water and critters, the continued offensives in defiance of science and common humanity, these are an effect of the upward wealth funneling machine. Human equivalent corporations have captured the regulatory regimes designed to oversee them and are extracting maximum profit, externalizing the costs of their chemical feast onto and into us, just as they do with our illness through a corporatized health industry and with our lives through the low-wage, high-rent economy. So far, I've mostly been committing an offense common to the literature of self-proclaimed alternative vision. I've described the disease and the struggle in some detail, while generalizing the goal of healthy societal alternatives, specifically how how a better world might manifest and what it might look like. So let me end with some admittedly kitschy and arbitrary description of a life in an alternative system and the possible paths of transition. Imagine a movie trailer voice. Imagine a world where people work by choice, an average of just 12 to 36 hours a week, producing healthy goods designed to endure, 
or providing skilled services in projects promoting human rights and ecological restoration, the very tasks required for a collective future. The rest of the time, people occupy in activities of their choosing, largely in personal, familial, cultural, educational, artistic, or spiritual activities. This peaceful, creative, inquisitive, compassionate, and truly productive society might still suffer from many age-old problems, but at least it has a chance to finally transcend the worst brutalities recurrent to their constituents' common history, and to build increasingly humane systems in concert with our planet's rich living ecology. Such a better world is possible. To borrow from the slogan of the World Social Forum I was once honored to attend, this future world, as I conceive it, could actually be much more productive, despite the scaled-back work week, than the current system wherein far too much toil remains dedicated towards war, surveillance, the ever-present wealth funneling machine, and the manufacturing and distributing disposable goods used increasingly destructive carbon-emitting energy. In opposition to a system which creates excess goods made from toxic materials, within a closed system designed for an infinite growth of excess goods made from toxic materials and toxic waste, It should not be so difficult to articulate a better future and move towards its many possible manifestations. Such a world, with sharing values and wards against the structural power accumulation, might soon operate at a far higher level of understanding and progress than we can ever be able to imagine today. That's my hope, and also my excuse for not describing here in further details of my vision for the better future. As to today's obstructionist political stalemate and the difficult transformations required to get from here to there, from bad future to better future, I think it necessary to address a conceptual roadblock, often sublimated and subconscious, that often prevents discussions of reform within the working and middle classes that I am most familiar with. One great fear in the West is that extending human rights and equitably redistributing wealth to everyone will destroy the middle class or even the working class. If that's your fear, you need to wake up. The middle class today is shrinking by design, and, as in robber baron days, becoming skewed towards a specialized high-end coterie of professional and managerial service providers. At least, until like future Uber drivers, these tasks can be replaced by robots or transhuman hand servants. As for the vast spectrum of the working class, in the West and around the world, despite a consistently false and distorted representation to them and about them, for the most part, they still know the real enemy is the rich, and are ready to act accordingly given the proper provocation. Which brings us to the current historical moment. As a multi-decade leftist, I have been heartened to see youth-led activism for environmental and racial justice, re-expressing the need for radical society transformation. Reparations and ecological restoration should go hand in hand, especially since it was the exploited and holocausted Aboriginal societies which held so much knowledge of the natural systems. I'll forego the concrete poetry that I started with and just point out that the light cones of past and future point to here now, from both directions. 
to us. To my magical thinking mind, this indicates to me that this is the time for us to articulate our better visions of the future. My suspicion is that many will have said it better than this already, and my hope is that many more will do so soon. And then, for those of us with the inclination and energy to do so, the work ahead is clear, to make this future materialize out of the probability cloud. This concludes The Prophecy, episode one of our special event celebrating the release of our 13th issue of Deep Overstock, Future. We'll be back next week with our regular programming, and in two weeks, we will continue our future release reading with The Fall. You've been listening to the Deep Overstock Fiction Podcast. Our theme music is the song Shibuya by Bad Snacks. Join us again next week, and don't forget to submit for our next issue, Magic, before August 31st. Visit deepoverstock.com slash submissions for specific guidelines.